Thunder Media. Of all the people with a story to tell, today we hear one of the best storytellers. And funnily enough, his name's a story to itself. On Inside Supercars, we hear from Wally's story. These people run the whole time, you know, like this is a very hectic, intense business and it doesn't stop. So you're either on the boat and you're running like mad or you're off, you know. Shooting straight and telling it just like it is. I'm, I'm not convinced that saving money in motor racing is as easy as you think. This is the top level of motor racing in the Southern Hemisphere, right? And it's a very tough game. If, if you've got any doubts about the quality of the people in it, Scott McLaughlin, he came out of a barge that weighs 1,380 kilos with a spool diff and jumped into a rocket ship that doesn't even look like a racing car and he's up the front. Now man, that is that shows you the talent of the drivers at least, doesn't it? Get the whole story with Wally's story today on Inside Supercars. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Motorsport. Tony Whitlock and Craig Vell, and we're joined here by one of the doyens, and he mightn't think it, but one of the doyens of Australian motorsport, because he's been here a while. I've been here consecutively, consistently, throughout a period of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, thousands. Wally Story, welcome back to Inside Motorsport. Yeah, g'day, Mr Whitlock, how you doing? doing very well because we're at one of our favourite places in the world, our racetrack, Winton Raceway. This is actually my first day at a race, well, first weekend at a racetrack since I retired in about the end of 2018. I haven't actually been to a racetrack since then, oh, well, not a supercar race anyway, I've been, I've got some friends that have an historic Formula Ford and I help them and we have a pretty good time but it's not, it's racing but it's not motor racing as you would know it here. It's a totally different ball game. It's more like tennis hit and giggle. But it's still a happy place. Oh, yeah, it's good. I mean, people ask me, do I miss it? I miss the people, I miss the competition. I miss a lot of things, but keep in mind by now I'm 72. And as they say in the classics, I'm too old for this shit. Like, these people run the whole time, you know? Like, this is a very hectic, intense business, and it doesn't stop. So you're either on the boat and you're running like mad, or you're off, you know? All right, well, let's, start, let's talk about how you started. Sydney born. Yep. Yep, yeah, definitely. Helson Park. Yeah. And yeah, I grew up. Helson Park went to Canterbury Boys High School. Yeah. And in it's fact. A tough area. I, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's pretty. Anywhere's tough when you're growing up. Isn't it? <laughs> it teaches you to stand up for yourself. Yeah. John Howard was one of the people who went to our high school. There'll be half the viewers might be keen on that. Now the half will think it's all right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you went and did an apprenticeship? Yeah, I worked at GMF Electric Motors. I did an apprenticeship there, um, electrical fitter. So about the end of my time, 
There I was a supervisor in the assembly department and in the, I used to set up winding machines. I got a bit of mechanical now, so I was actually setting electric motor winding machines there for a long time. And eventually I just got lured off into motor racing. I used to, by then I'd built my own car while we were working there with Elwyn. We'd built a race car and I was starting to race and the people starting to get cranky as I was trying to take Elwin my whole... Bickley. Elwyn Bickley, and that's correct. It's called a... 001, Elwyn, right? It was a remake of a Lynx. I bought a Lynx, which was actually Kevin Bartlett's Lynx originally, okay. off um, Dick Carter. And I did like two days and crashed the thing, like the old new kids do. Your ego's getting better than your talent level. And uh, so we, Elwin and I looked at this thing and thought, we can do a better job of this, which not hard, because it's probably 50 years old by then. And uh, so we built a car. And the only thing we used was a steering rack and the front uprights. And the rest, we uh, bought a Mark 9, brand new Mark 9 gearbox from Hewland, did all my own customs clearancing, which was a whole new experience of learning. And we built a car. We made several attempts, but eventually we came up with a car. It had to be like 1974, 75, somewhere. With it. I think I raced it. would have been going for about three or four years yes. at that stage. Yeah, that's correct, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. And there were competitive fields then, weren't there? Oh, yeah, it was always, Formula Ford's always competitive. Like, it's, like, we started out building Clubman cars, and Dave Moore said to us, like, Nah, this is the place, boys. This is no excuse category. This is where you need to be. You know, stop mucking around with road cars. This is where you got to do it. Well, mm, okay. So we started building Formula Fords, and we had some pretty radical ideas. And Dave hosed us down on them. You know, they turned out to be pretty normal later. Like we, we were going to sit me up the front and put a 12-inch like fabricated bell housing in, and Dave's like, "Woo, woo, calm down. Just build a copy of a Brabham for a start. You don't know if the bloke can drive. You don't know if you can build engines. You don't know if you can build cars. Like." Just start off in the middle of the road, like at least if you're lost, you've cut out a lot of the question marks, you know, which is true, right? It was very good advice, like, and like, fortunately I've been subject to that good advice from a lot of people, so. In fact, mentioning Dave Moore, I've been fortunate enough and I've been to his workshop in Orangeville and, and he and um, Bruce Carey and Harry Galloway, some really smart people you've had great fortune to be around and to learn from. Oh yeah, Dave, especially when he was a Greenacre, we started out in Lapish Avenue at Asheville with he and Bruce Carey mucking around there. Then he, they needed a bigger building, so they moved up to Greenacre with Ford Street. And then Carey man moved in the end where a very famous known person would be. Mike Gore had a workshop, which derived a lot of good stories afterwards since he left. Um, so yeah, then Dave had this place which was quite a bit bigger and eventually he decided he'd rather move to Orangeville, like out near Camden Way. So he built a big shed on a hill and his brother-in-law took over and Elwin and I worked for his brother-in-law and then we brought his brother-in-law out and then eventually Elwin decided he'd like to go to Goulburn where he is still where he is now and I bought Elwin's half out. So then I had the business and I went, I pressed on there for about 12 years until HRT bought me out for me to go and run the workshop there. You started at a time when there was no university program, there was no TAFE course to learn about racing. Do people now not appreciate mentoring in training and the value of mentoring in this day and age? Um, I think it's probably lost a bit, yeah. I mean, you get a guy with a lot of experience. He's seen and done a lot of things. Like, like I pointed out before, I've had a lot of people with a lot of experience help me, and, man, it's covered a lot of ground and cut out a lot of dead time. Like, there's no point in relearning it. If somebody's already learned it, and, and you know they know what they're on about. If you don't take it on board, you're pretty dopey because, quite frankly, they're trying to help you. Most people are trying to help you. They're not, they're not 
trying to lead you astray. You know, if you've gone to someone, just about anybody in the supercar paddock, they're pretty good people and they're very clever. Like, there's not too many dopes live in the supercar paddock. They don't tolerate dopes even more than about three nanoseconds. You're out of a job pretty quick. If, if you ask them and they give you good advice or good information, they're generally pretty good. Like, the, you know, with people with me, if it's something I don't want to tell them, I'll say, look, I'd rather not tell you. You know, it's something... And, and that's usually because I've used someone else's money and shared someone else's time to learn that, and then therefore the information's not entirely mine, if that makes sense. Um, if it's something I've nutted out before I've come or something I've nutted out on my own, then I'm more often than not happy to share the information if, you know, provided it doesn't infringe on something I'm doing, you know. And most people here will be the same. But, you know, like there is a lot of what, what people call it these days, IP or something, isn't it? And, and, and that's reasonably, that should be fairly protected because in a lot of cases it costs a lot of money and a lot of thinking time to get that far. So I can understand why people are protective of it. You know, it's like, anyway. Yeah. Formula Ford, when it arrived here, it was about four or five years after it had been introduced in England. Maybe less than that, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think so. It would only been a year or two. I was yeah, a couple okay. of years at most, well, I'd say. It was one who introduced it in this country, and he was then editor of Auto Action, mm. um, or became editor of Auto Action, like Car Club. Um, it was obviously a category that suited you, the way in which you were able to get into motorsport. Well, for a bloke that just earned like a tradesman on a wage, you're not going to rush around buying a latest Cortina, which was a dream car of my life, because you just can't afford it, you know. But a Formula Ford, the two blokes could make in a shed in Greenacre, which is exactly what we did, you know. And then we ran out and took this thing out and raced it, and we started at the back like everybody does, and slowly but surely learned that maybe weren't the best engine builders either, so got Steve Wiesner involved, got better engines and learned a lot more about sorting the car and so forth and later on we built another car which I wouldn't end up racing and then I ended up racing that again in 1979, he couldn't afford to run it and I, I couldn't afford to run it but I got to do it with Richard Steigler so he bought the car and I drove it so that's how I ended up driving for as long as I did then after that we ended up with the business in Greenacre and I really couldn't afford to go off racing all the time so I ended up testing cars like being paid by people to test their cars and tune them and so forth and that went on for a long time. That, that must exaggerate or accelerated your learning curve that going and testing and learning things yourself about a car and what it does. It, it puts the acid on you when you're thinking because somebody's paying you to make a performance out of their car aren't they right so you want performance out of your car and you're you're asking someone to do it for you and you're paying them most people expect a result. You go, you, go, you go to Coles and buy a pound of tomatoes, you get a pound of tomatoes, don't you, for your money. So they're not into smoke and mirrors that much. So, but that forces you to sit down. Keep in mind, this is day before data. You had no data. You had, the only data you had was what you perceived from your own backside and your neck and so forth, you know. So in, in that regard, you had to really think about which way, where you're headed, you know. So, yeah, it teaches you to think. And it, you know, I keep in mind, from a shed floor at Greenacre with long bits of string and chalk, we learn about where oil centres and where to put them. And later on, you learn how much difference it makes in different cars. Like some cars makes very little difference if you shuffle a roll centre up and down. Like open wheel cars, they don't respond very much to it because they don't roll much, so they've got very little weight transfer out of roll. Whereas a touring car, when you fiddle with a touring car, it sears prick up in a big way because you know they do a lot more rolling, so you get more action out of them. You've been involved in this sport and this particular sport of supercars for many years. I mean, my first involvement I know of you was um, HRT um, 1990 and that, that famous win 
Wynne Percy and, and Alan Grice. Um, I was actually talking to Rob Benson today and <laughs> remembering the crimes of yesteryear, so to speak. But, uh, you know, the, you're, to get there, you'd been in other places, hadn't you? Tell us about those. Oh, before I end up at HRT, I, I keep in mind I started testing cars pretty much 1980. So by the time 1990 came, I'd driven, I think I tested 34 different Formula Fords, a couple of Formula Holdens, probably half a dozen sports sedans, five or six different touring cars. And, you know, tuned them in one way or another. So, you know, I'd had plenty of backgrounding on, again, like I said, what the Roll Centre does and why, why you need to have it where you do and what its relationship is to the rest of the car. Yeah, why you need caster, what what the kingpin of inclination has on caster and all that jam, you know, force you to think about all that interaction and then, you know, where the car's, what sort of diff the car's got and why you need to change, what you need to change with the diff, the type of differential if it has one or it may not have one, you know. And, one of, and when you joined HRT, of course, Wynne Percy had been sent by Tom Walkinshaw to set the team up. And you didn't do many of the Touring Car Championship races that year, did you? You, you picked and chose the ones you'd do. Yeah, I can, I can think of a fair few we did, but we may not have done all of them. I don't know that we went to Perth. I can't remember Perth in 1990. We may have done it. There was something that you were working towards that year, wasn't there? Well, basically, in a car in those days... You don't need a calculator to know that a Commodore's got 510 horsepower and weighs 1,350 kilograms. And a Sierra weighs 1,150 kilograms and has got 600 horsepower. You don't need a calculator to work out that you're fairly well behind the eight ball. What a Commodore does have is durability and bigger wheels and tyres. So there's no point in bleeding about your disadvantage. You've got to work to your advantage. So all that year we worked hard on looking at things and trying things and changing things so that when we got to Bathurst, we had a car that we could flog the living daylights out of all day, you know, because that's your only hope. You've got to be able to drive it. Two fast blokes and a fast car is what you need at Bathurst. And, that, you know, people ask me and I tell them, it's what you need, two fast blokes and a fast car. If you haven't got that, you're shoveling it up with a fork stick already. But if you have got that, you're in with a good shot, basically, you know. And, and no matter how buggy, much you buggy your strategy, you can still be in with the game because you've got the major ingredients sort of thing. And what we had was two fast blokes and a fast car. We had a car you could drive flat out all day. They all, you know, like if you think back years before, when a Walkinshaw thing first arrived, all the, there's a classic in-car with Grice with all the gauges off the planet, you know. Well, our car didn't have that problem. You, you know, our car didn't have that problem. You could drive it flat out all day, literally flat out all day. The brakes kept going all day. Didn't have to back out the brakes, but most people did. Like the Nissan couldn't do it all day. Like the thing that saved us with the Nissan four-wheel drive is it actually had to, they had to drive a bit harder than they thought they did because like they, had, they were changing brakes and pads and, and colour of the paint and the stickers and every other damn thing all day. So, you know, they, that put a bit of pressure on. I mean, it was a new car. It might have died anyway, you know, because it was very new to them. But they'd run old touring car championship with it or most of it. It was an unexpected win that year in 1990, though, wasn't it? it no one really expected you to actually go and win the race. I don't think if you look through all the motoring magazines and papers, I think only one in ten of rated as a top ten chance. I mean, it was just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, God knows, it's a miracle, isn't it? Like the car just, the car by all logic and, car by all logic and numbers doesn't cut the mustard. You chose where we're sitting. The, the car by logic and numbers doesn't cut the mustard, does it? But the bottom line is it did. If you put two fast blokes in it and drove it hard enough all day, it, yes, it did.
and we, we had to stretch things. You know, we had a couple of different sorts of brake pads, and we certainly used the ones that we didn't want to use. But Grice was like, if we use these, we can outbreak anybody. And I'm like, yeah, you might be able to, but we might melt everything. We just went to sand and ended up in the sand pit. Remember? So, you know, oh yeah, hmm. said so you fixed that though, haven't you? I said, well, I think I'd fix it, but how are you going to know until you start racing it? Like, so as it turned out, we had fixed it. Yeah, it was good. I mean, there were very, there were a lot of marginal things on the car. It was a miracle in a million ways. We had the world's worst pit stop. Unfortunately, there was enough safety cars and that sort of jam to get us back in the game. But the bottom line was the car was fast enough. In the end, if you think it through and look at it all, the car was a very fast car on the day relative to cars that would keep going all day. I mean, there were people with faster cars, but they couldn't keep going at that rate all day. Like, we, we started at the same rate we finished at, but, you know, literally drove it as hard as we could. I mean, Grice had probably a bit left at the end of the day, I think, because we were very cautious about the fuel because we didn't know. And I just said to him, like, if you keep it, like, keep it down about seven, that'd be really good, you know, because um, I'm not sure about the fuel. You know, like, and he just said, with the Sierra that was behind us, he said, just let me know if the gap gets under 12 seconds, I'll crank it up a bit, but otherwise I'll just rock along saving fuel. And like, yeah, and as it turned out, the miracle come true, didn't it? And like, the car the next year was a lot better car. In every way, it was a lot better car. The deal job he did was a lot better job, but the Nissan was a lot better as well, so. Yeah, so the, the first time I actually met you was at Wayne Gardner Racing. And uh, the second round of the championship was at Sandown in 94. Uh, Wayne Gardner was only established at late 93, is that correct? I'd say yes, very, very late. I'd say 94 was his first outings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, Amara was the opening round and then Sandown. Yeah, he bought out Bob Forbes Racing, the franchise there, um, and the car and all the jam and the people, which is, they needed everything. That's what they bought, everything, yeah. basically. Um, he was team manager and Paris Acott fabricator, Rob Benson doing engines. You had a pretty experienced crew around you. Yeah, but it's like any new team, you don't pull it together in five minutes anyway, do you? And yeah, like it looks like there's a million dollars there. There's, there was good funding, but not overly overly generous funding, but there was good funding, yeah. It was a, it, it probably, there were a few basics there that could have been done better, I think, but generally it wasn't a bad show, yeah. And of course, um, in, in your time, you've been involved in a number of different teams. Lansdale, of course, most famously in Sydney there with Steve Reed and Trevor Ashby. Um, that was a, a, an interesting time because you went from, you know, a, a single car team. I think you were briefly a two car team. Cam McConville was your, one of the last drivers you were there with. Yeah, the Lansdale thing started in about 1987, 86, 87. Um, the fella was a mechanic for them and who I still go fishing with occasionally. And they were sort of sitting around working out how to make more speed out of a Commodore because they were all sports sedan people, they hadn't done touring car stuff. And he just said like, there's a Formula Ford bloke over the railway line here that's, you know, most of his cars are winning, why don't we go and try him? And they, Trevor come bounding in with Steve, you know, and Trevor did a talk and he's like, how would you like to come to Bathurst? I'm like, what do you mean like to come to Bathurst? What are you talking about? Like. Nobody goes to Bathurst because they like the hour unless they're driving because everybody else has got a lousy deal. And he's like, oh, you don't want to go? And I'm like, no. So I give him a price and poor old Trevi just about fainted. And he's like, oh, I thought you just want to go. I said, I've got accommodation booked for the opening of the trout season at Nimitabel. That's where I'd like to go. So that's the reason I booked it. That's where I'd like to go. I can go to Bathurst with anybody for nothing. Oh, 
oh, okay. So then they must have gone outside and sat in the car and decided that, okay, we'll pay the price. <laughs> and he came back and said, okay, the deal's on. Oh, poor. So then I had to go and cancel my accommodation and not go fishing. But like from then, it's gone, gone a pretty good friendship, hasn't it? It's gone on for a long time and we're really good friends. At the end of the race meeting at Bathurst, Trevi said, I thought you were sticking it up, he said, but it's one of the best deals I've done. He said, I'm really happy. He said, it was really good. So not often you get a customer that happy, eh? It was Ron Gillard was one, another one of your mentors. Yes. Yeah, Ronnie gave me the first job. He, he was running a... I raced in 1983 with Terry Shields, a co-driver with his Mazda at Bathurst. And we had various brake problems and didn't finish, but Ronnie was there with another customer of mine. I used to do work for a fella called... Um, uh, it's an old age, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? Phil Alexander, he had a rotary business, see, and I used to do a lot of frills, peripheral porting and bridge porting and manifolds and stuff. Um, and Ronnie used to hang around with him a bit. And then Ronnie did a deal with Goodyear to run a Mazda with Mark Gibbs. And they were looking for a team manager. God knows why you'd think I'd be able to do that shit. Anyway, he dragged me into that. So that was, yeah, that was... But I'd met Ronnie 100 years before when I had my Cortina with a couple of Webbers. I was looking for someone who knew how to make Webbers work. And a, and a bloke at Hurlston Park, a fellow called Bill Slattery, used to race at FC Holden. He said, oh, there's a bloke down at Malcolm Motors down there, bloody Redfern or somewhere. Go down there, he knows what he's doing. So I went down in there and he was argy working on something with bloody dirty old overalls. On a Saturday afternoon, I wobbled in. Oh, i got this problem with the Webbers. Oh, leave me alone. Which is what you still get. But he was really helpful. Like he, he knew what happened. He, he understood how the whole thing worked. And very, very few people really understood how a Weber worked between the emulsion tubes, the main jet, and the air correctors and so forth. Like he had a very good understanding. And it's turned out that he was pretty clever. But he's always good with advice, you know. Someone you can go to and say, you know, this is what I think, Argy, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, I've had this happen. Because, you know, again, it's, you're drawing on a massive bank of experience, aren't you? If you, you might not have been through it, but there's a fair chance someone you know has. Yeah, this is what I did, this is what happened, okay, sort of thing. You've lived and worked through the era from when motor racing was open wheelers in this country, um, because back in the 50s and 60s, that's what motor racing was. And then touring cars came into higher and higher prominence till the late 60s, and then suddenly the Bob Janes and the Mustangs and all those things came along. Um, and then we saw the demise of open wheelers in this country. Um, you've also seen real motor racing and, and that involves Formula Ford and, and those other categories and this new showbiz motor racing. Um, I know which sort, sort you really like and I'm not suggesting that, uh, but it's, it's the blending of the two where people, oh, we're in entertainment business now, <laughs> which is hard to understand really in some ways. In the end, if it costs a lot of money. Motor racing at the level we're sitting amongst here at supercars, it's a lot of money, right? Like even a small team's got a staff of 30 or 40 people, right? They've got a power bill of 40 grand a quarter. You know, they've got, they've got paint shops to run, fabrication shops to run, they've got NC machinery. Like, it costs money and that requires sponsorship. And it's like any business deal, I suppose, you're going to have to strike some sort of compromises in your principles to get where you want to go. And Brad and Kim... They are very, very good at that, you know, like those bikes started with nothing and they've got a pretty good thing going, at least, well, Brad's taken over now, but it, they built a pretty big empire for two blokes that did, didn't start with much other than their own nous, you know, their own instinct and ability. So 
And that's, it's this, you know, like think about what it costs. You, do I like the entertainment part of it? No, it's probably the reason I went out of it because it's just, you run, like I said to you, this is hectic, right? It, it's, it's a hectic business. And when you get to nearly 70 years of age or 68 like I was, you just can't run that hard that often, you know? Like a normal race meeting, when it was two weeks apart, is Wednesday, you get out of bed at 4.30, right? Rush down to the workshop, get an aeroplane, go to wherever you're going, which might be Perth, it might be Downsville, it might be Darwin, right? I mean, we've managed to make a trip to Darwin last 26 hours once, right? Because, you know, there was fog in Albury, so we couldn't get out. So then you're not on the planes you're booked on, so it just goes on and on, you know? Well, you just got to soak that up. There's no other way of doing it because you can't send people the day early everywhere just in case it's foggy, can you? Like, the budget doesn't have that in it, right? Nobody, nobody's business has got that budget in it, you know? So anyway, so you get out of bed at 4.30, you rush like mad, you go, in my case at Brad's, I, because my wife did the cooking, I helped set up the catering, then I'd go and help with the engineering department in the A trailer and set that up. Then you do a track walk, then you sit around and have a pre-brief and come up with the test plan. And that, that's it's sort of, but the minute you get there, it doesn't stop. And the first time you go, ah, thank God for that, it's Sunday night when you get to the airport because hopefully you've got there with a few minutes to spare and you don't have to rush the aeroplane. But sometimes you actually run into the aeroplane from getting out of the rental cars and stuff like that. And that's a pretty hectic life that these blacks have. And when you get to 68, it's, you know, as they say in the classics, too old for this shit, you know. When did you join Brad? Uh, I joined Brad's at the beginning of 2008. I left Tasman, left Tasman at the end of 2007 and joined Brad's at the end of, beginning of 2008. So I was at two... I was there from 2008 till the end of 2018 as a full-time modern engineer. Then I was around for another 12 months teaching people to do shock absorbers and still doing the pit stop stuff and like for probably three to five days a week, depending on what they needed, you know. Without patting yourself on the back, it must be very pleasing to have seen you. I mean, Brad has a reputation, which I first knew of back before he arrived in supercars. I went into uh, NASCAR Oscar days when Brad and Kim were there and I... I went there because they were coming, to, I'd seen them of course in 2 litre, but coming to V8s and I remember watching um, Kim at work, Brad behind the wheel, Kim working and they, they wouldn't go down a lap, they just keep on coming in. I think it was seven or eight times they'd come in, do some repairs and then get out before the pace car came back and kept on and on doing that and uh, it was an amazing perseverance and it paid off. I mean. Brad ended up picking up a second, third or fourth or whatever, but it, it was an extraordinary thing and, and I realised that these guys mean business. They were the ultimate racers, Brad and Kim. There were very few in the paddock who weren't more so than them. I think, yep, like I said before, they, they started with nothing. Like, this is a very expensive business. Most of the successful people came here with a lot of money to start with, didn't they? Right? Or they've got in at the very beginning and got good sponsorship and kept it going. These blokes haven't done that. They, it was a massively, well, I suppose two litre wasn't going very far, but it was a big, a brave move to jump out of an Audi, which was obviously a very good tennis racket for the game, and then jump into supercars, which is every horse is on its merits. Very, you know, even those days, the horse was very much on its merits. So it, it was a big, you know, pretty big, tough decision. But the, I suppose they've got no choice. They want to go upwards. This is the way you go up, you know. <coughs> there is no other way up. So, yeah, I first met Brad. He, he ended up buying a Formula Ford off Stigs, which is the second car Earl and I built. So that's how I first met Brad. His old man was like, you should come and work for us. I'm like, so are you paying the rent or what? Because <laughs> old Phil was like, he was always onto, onto the scam of the, any scam he could run. 
And like one time Brad had this huge shunt and my missus was doing catering, so I was doing the bar work, the catering at that stage. And Chris Davison was the bloke who discovered Brad. He's like, I got this young kid, motorbike rider down my way, he's a hot shot, you know, wow. I'm like, yep, you still gotta pay the bills. Like <laughs> I love it, but I still gotta pay the bills. I still got wives and kids, you know. Or wives at that stage. And he's like, oh, yeah. So anyway, Brad had this shunt, he said, Can you fix this thing? I'm like, Yeah, who's gonna do the bar work? I'll do that. So we sent this bloody professional cattle farmer off to do the bar work while I've gone back to my workshop in Greenacre and built this thing and Brad I think you might have won the race because they were all then pumped like wow how good is this and old Phil's like I think you should join our team I'm like yeah, how much money have you got <laughs> oh oh you want to be paid that's how it all was 20 years of course before you finally did join them yeah that's right yeah and Kimmy and, Kimmy and Brad and I got on ever since like when they were running around with those cars there was another guy from Albury who actually had the Mullingandra pub, which is now not working, a fellow called Mark Seaton. And he and a bunch of other guys from Formula 4 dragged me into playing with their Oscar, they had a Falcon. And I started tuning this thing, and I had no idea. And I said to them, like, I'll do the first day for nothing, because I've got no idea about these things. Well, if I make progress, I'll get paid. If I don't, I won't. How's that sound to you? They're like, oh, we'll pay you. It'll be all right. Anyway, Kimmy ended up saying to me, I don't suppose you'd like to go back where you come from, would you? Like, this thing's, you're smartening this thing up a bit too much. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I end up then I went to HRT, so that fixed that problem for them. But they like they, you know, in Oscar they're a pretty dominant pair. Like there's two of them, and they they're pretty into it. Like you know, one's doing one bit, the other bloke's doing the other bit. They're both you know, they're they not. So yeah, that's right. They didn't try and both do the one thing. They they were both doing separate things. You know. Um, and of course, as I was saying, it must be very pleasing because Brad um, now Brad because Kim's uh, retired from the business. But Brad and his team of Merry Warriors have become the dominant force in pit stops in Australia. They have won it three or four years in a row. Um, and that must be very pleasing. And you set the foundations in place, you know, not that long ago. Yeah, when I first went to Brad's, they were chapping me go to go to go to go. And I'm like, what do you want me to do now? I'm here. Okay, you got me. What do you want? And Brad said, look, I don't actually have a particular mission other than, yeah, I can engineer a car. Just, you've been around a long time, go around and walk around the place and fix what you think needs fixing, right? So I looked at the pit stops and they had all the gear. They've got a pit stop car, they had all the, they got a gas deal, how good's that, right? BAC, had a lot of stuff, but they didn't have anyone there really pushing along because they didn't have, it's like any small team, there's not enough people to do everything, right? Like none of the engineering staff could have done it because it was only Andrew Edwards and Matt Boniface full time. Then I come along, so I increased the buddy staff by 50%, you know? So, although they may want to do all that stuff, they can't. So I, I said to Matt Boniface, because he was trying to run the machine shop, the Fabby shop, you know, the program to get all the stuff made in order there, and he was doing the shocks. So I said, look, I'm a bit into shock absorbers. How about if I do the shock absorbers? Take that off your hands. That'll free you up with a shitload of hours to do that. So then we'll get the Fabby stuff organised on time and that rubbish. And in the meantime, I looked at the pit stops, and I thought, yeah, we've got all the gear, but... In two-litre, they were the dominant force. They were very good, but they sort of... Again, when they went to five-litre, they, they're trying to divide the pie up too many ways and not enough people, really. I suppose probably the biggest problem. So I said, I'll take on the pit stop thing. So I started working on it then. So Kimmy being the deal doer, he'd done a deal and we had a pretty good video camera. So I started videoing pit stops and we started poaching footage out of telecasts and watching how other people do it. Then we'd all sit at the table and have a discussion about how to do it and what's the best way of doing it. You know, we poached bits and ideas from various teams, you know, from Stone Brothers and HRT and a few other people. So we just 
we refined it down to, okay, this is the method now. There, will, there won't be, you know, initially we had 15 blokes doing it 15 different ways, but we've pared that down, okay, this is the way you do this. You know, from, from time and everything, 100 times, this is the way we do it, you know. We'll do it the best way. Even an Adrian Burgess was at Triple Eight and they went to Texas and they were quacking on about, we've got three blokes on a wheel now, look how clever we are. And we tested out the backyard, we tried it. And it didn't really do anything. Like, we had pretty good blokes, we give it a big lash and whether it was two people or one didn't make any difference. And if you go back to the Texas race and look at the footage, the pit stops and we whip them with two people in their three. So, I mean, I'm not top of saying it and the proof was in the pudding. We proved that you didn't need to. I mean, in F1, yes, because you can get around the bodywork a lot easier. There's no bodywork. It's much easier to do with three. But in touring cars, well, they'd never do it now because they're paranoid about cross-cutting. So, like... So you wouldn't ever have 300 blokes in a wheel. They wouldn't let you take that many race, people to race meeting anymore. But um, in the end, you just need good blokes. And the, it's, it's not just the people that's getting the whole school of thought and the, the culture in the place and the, the blokes want to be better. Like, people don't go motor racing for something to do. The hourly rate's lousy. They go motor racing because they want to be better. So, you know, and it, it's an industry that fills itself up with high-attainment people. You know, they, they all want to do high attainment. They want to be better. They, and the pit stop blokes, they want to contribute. They want to contribute to the result, and this is their chance. And, it, and if you've got a bloke that's not quite good enough, it's the hardest thing. He's trying as hard as he can. The hardest thing is to say, I'm sorry, mate, you're going to have to sit this out because right now you need more practice. You, you need to work on this, you know. And I don't like doing that, but for the benefit of everybody, you have to do that. Have you actually had, um, not time and motion, I can't think of what the, the people involved, but the ones who study human movement and things like that, have you ever spoken with any of those sort of people about it? Yes, Brad had contact with a lady they, they, to do with the university and stuff. We had people up there, you know, the little lights flashing here and there and that sort of stuff. We did a fair bit of that. We, we fairly, I mean, keep in mind it's a limited budget, so you can't do that much, right? You've got to be mostly, we don't have a gym program, we don't go to the gym, we don't do anything else. When I first lobbed, we were doing it five days a week, three times a day, and there was a lot of bad backs. So we, now it's, the, the standard program at Brad's now is three days a week, twice a day, and not many stops, like two or three stops. That's it. Like we just, you're not going to wear them down. Well, they're already sharp. They just need to be honed and get the edge back on them every time. And they want to be, they want to do it. They want to, you know, like Sammy's running it now, and he's doing an exceptional job. He's kept it going. Like there's, if there's one thing harder than making it successful, it's keeping it successful, isn't it? You know, to keep the motivation going once you've, Oh, well, we beat them. What now? No, you've got to beat them again and again and again. Like, Chris, there's only one way down from the top. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's no further up. It's down, you know. So to maintain that, it's, it's hard. Have you got thoughts about Formula One pit stops? Mm, I watch them quite a bit. It's, it's just different, isn't it? I mean, it's just it's the same thing. It's still a bunch of blokes trying to do a really good job, isn't it? Like, it's, I find them quite interesting, but... I actually don't watch that much Formula One. There's so much argument about this bloke with his jewellery and stuff and walking into press conferences with chains around there can try to make political statements. Sporting people lose me the minute they start trying to diversify from their job and get onto political statements. Like, I don't get into political statements. You know, I'm a motor racing engineer. And, I'm, you know, history shows I'm not bad at it. Stick to what you do. You know, like, let the politician do the bullshitting. You know, as part of motor racing, pit stops now are in virtually every type, even Formula 3s and Formula 2s in Europe. Um, fortunately, they haven't come in here because 
you know, next thing you'll be bringing Formula Ford. But the one thing I, I find is, and a large part of the introduction of them is to try and increase the competitiveness of those categories because they're running control chassis and all those sorts of things. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, my favourite pit stops of all time is with the early 90s IndyCars when the guys, you'd have one guy po wheel, he'd have a run, gun in one hand, a wheel in the other, and he'd slide in on his carbon fibre pads and bang, 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 and it happened. They weren't fast, but they were no, far more spectacular. Yeah. Um, the pit stop thing, it's, keep in mind, it's quite expensive. So, like at, at BJ's, we're fortunate there that the people that owned it were committed. And they're racers and they understand it. So when you go and sit in the office and say, OK, I want to spend this... Unless it's a mad cap thing, you'll usually get it. And that, from a place with no money, that's a pretty fair achievement, you know. But it's because the people you're dealing with are racers. They're racers and they want to be racers and they want to be successful and they understand this makes a difference. And like the proof's in the pudding now, it does make a difference, doesn't it? Like, I mean, Brad's getting a financial return out of it at the pit stop contest, but what he gets to the 20 grand wouldn't cover the maintenance on the rattle guns by any stretch of imagination, you know. I mean, the rattle gun maintenance wouldn't be that different if you didn't practice because you like like all motor racing stuff you put new stuff in don't you a lot and it, like most of motor racing expenses not cost it's like it's paying insurance isn't it like you're doing a lot of work to make sure it doesn't fail it's got enough it would probably go 10 times as far but because so much hinges on it and so much money's involved and so many people are involved you just don't take the risk so it's you know it's a low risk thing that makes yeah, you know, people say to me, you know, I get a lot of people say to me, why does it cost so much? I said, well, it's, it's an insurance thing. You know, it's, everything's got a life, and you, usually the life's about one-tenth of what it really is in most instances, but you just can't take the risk, especially production stuff, you know, like because the, the quality varies so much, you know. One bit might go 10,000 miles, and the other bit might go five. You know, so you've got to set the life at two, haven't you? Because they might make another bad one, you know. You're here at Winton this weekend, first time you said since 2018 at a racetrack. Do you watch it at all on TV? Uh, yes, to say I don't wouldn't be right. I don't. Yes, I do, but I, I do watch it for the live timing because obviously, you know, I've still got a bunch of friends here. We still go trap shooting occasionally. Yeah. I go to the workshop and soon because I don't live far out of Albury. You know, like, you can't spend that many hours with a bunch of blokes for 12 years and not, like, get to like them and vice versa, you know, like... I've had a fair contribution there, but they've contributed to me as well, you know, like a bloke of my demographic doesn't know how to work a computer, but they've been patient and taught me how to do it, you know. You know, like, like we don't work smartphones easily, but they've, they've been patient, they've taught me all that shit, you know, like reading data and how to do it and how to get out of the car, you know. Like when I started, there was a stop like that was it. If you wanted travel sensors, you put a tie wrap around the shock shaft, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't you know, there was none of this trick ship we got. Now, I, d I never had a proper data logger until about 1980, uh, sorry, 1993. We had, we had a PI System 4 at, at Bob Forbes Racing. Like Bob spent a lot of money because that was a lot of big expense at the time. And he said, do you want a data logger? Yeah. And Bob understood that, you know, some shit helps. And that certainly helps. So we spent a lot of money on it, System 4, but it was, it was as good as anything. It was like Formula 1 in those days. As good as Formula 1 had. And it, but you learnt a lot. Like a lot of stuff where you were guessing, all of a sudden there was no guesswork anymore, you know. I mean, we couldn't afford all the sensors. We went going to like a model shop or the stereo shop and getting stereo volume things and bits to make, you know, travel sensors because they were like 500 bucks each and that sort of stuff. So we were making our own, a lot of stuff. But 
you get the same information. It's pretty academic. And, and of course, you're here helping friends, uh, friends being the Blanchards. You're just giving a, a look over their pit stops and seeing if you can help them just smooth out some of the problems they're possibly having. Yeah, Timmy rang me a while ago and uh, I quite got to like them. There's a family, they're really good. They contribute a lot to motor racing. It, you know, from every area in historic to main game, they're pouring a lot of money in here. And, and yeah, and old Pop, I was very fond of Pop Blanchard who died recently. I was like, he's a really good bloke, like real fetting. I'm sure when he went to work, he used to crack a few heads to get action. But yeah, you know, like my missus and I spent a bit of time in different places. He was really good. I found him a real gentleman and a good person. So, and like Timmy, I worked with Timmy, and Timmy was the same. He's a he's a perfect gentleman. He did chuck tantrums, and you know, if he doesn't perform, he gets disappointed, like everybody. But he doesn't spit and throw things around and chuck tantrums like some people tend to do. So he, I found I got on pretty good with Timmy and he asked me for a bit of help. So I come down here, I've done a day down here once before with them and contributed. They've got a major problem and they don't have enough people. Like they don't have any people, see, that's a problem. So like at BJ's we had that problem initially, but as, as they grew and they from two cars or three cars or four cars, you get enough people and then you get enough people to choose from. So not everybody is a weapon wheel changer, you know, it's not, it's just like everybody's not a weapon driver or a weapon golfer, you know. It's, so if you've got enough people, you can choose better ones. So that gives you an advantage, doesn't it? Well, Timmy doesn't have that advantage. He's, he doesn't even have enough full-time staff to do it. He's got to import people to do it for him, you know. So, you know, they're handicapped in, from that regard. They, they, right now, they don't have a pit stop car or a pit stop rig or anything, right, where BJ's have got all that stuff for a long period of time, you know. So it's... A lot of their practice happens when they get here. I mean, but their stops are not bad. They're, they're pretty close to money. It's just a lot of what they got will come with practice. Once they get a rig, they'll they'll refine it just purely with practice, just just repetition. Just you don't have to tell the blokes. They're smart guys. The blokes that work here, they're not dopes. They they know when it didn't work and they know why it didn't work. They'll tell you why it didn't work a long time before you work it out. A lot of the time, you know. So you just, you just need to give them the opportunity all the time and just get everybody talking. And like a bit of a round table conference every so often and a bit of television stuff helps everybody get through it. You know, like, at, like at BJ's, if you're training a new guy, we get the video camera. You know, imagine it's a new fueler. We get the video camera, we just run the practice car in 25,000 times, you know. And we do the video footage and then you just put it up in the boardroom on the screen and you go through it and have a look at it. And, okay, yep, righto. And then you run a few of the blokes that are known goers. You know, this is what this guy does, this is how you do it, you know. Hmm. And more often than not, that fixes them pretty quick. If they've got, any, they got any ability to pick it up, they'll pick it up pretty quickly normally. Did the data revolution do a positive or negative, in your mind, to motor racing? The data revolution? We always try to accrue information. Data's just an easier way of accruing it. Um, if I was going to try and save money in the business, I'd probably ban all data. But whether that really saves money is an arguable point, because people usually take the cheapest route, don't they, right? And if, if, if run a couple of data guys and data is the cheapest way of learning, then are you really saving money by taking it away? Possibly not, right? So it's, it's never as straightforward as, oh, if you cut that out, we'll just give it five people. That, that really hasn't happened. Like, you know, we've had control shock absorbers introduced in this category. That hasn't actually deleted anybody out of the staff, you know. We've had control, we had, we had the 
uh, Trap Springs fling. That didn't really get anybody flung, did it? Like, it, you know, they just move on to other jobs. I have, I have a different opinion of what saves money or what costs money in business to, to a lot of the stuff you hear. My view is people spend what they've got and they'll spend it generally what they think is the most efficient way they've got. And if and that's where you'll get a result. And stopping people spending money is not that simple, is it? Like, you know, we were forced we were faced with a, a total racing expenditure cap or something at one point and there was this miracle that we we're gonna save everybody money. It's just an unworkable thing. If people have got a money and they're trying to gain advantage, they're comp this place is full of competitive people. They're going to do whatever they're going to do to get to the front. And, and it's not that easy to regulate them. Like, the, the sport's really heavily regulated now. Has it put more bums on seats, is the question. Because in the end, at this level of motor racing, that is the object of the game, to entertain more people, right? If it hasn't done it, then you haven't achieved what you set out to do, have you? You've failed, effectively. It might not be that blunt, but that's what it is, right? I've, I'd ask Brad this question before, should data be cut back to the, the NASCAR Oscar stopwatch almost on a race weekend and I've always liked his answer don't you think my engineers work hard enough, you take away the data, they've got to do twice as much work Yeah, well it goes along with what I said isn't it, people usually arrive at the cheapest way of doing things and accruing data is a fairly cheap way of doing it it's not Again, if you don't spend it there, you'll spend it somewhere else. Like, if, if you've ever had a brake problem and you don't have the brake travel sensors and you don't have the brake pressure sensors and try and solve it, man, it's a big day out. But if you can go and plug into the car and say, how are you feeling today? And you know, let's have a look at your brake pressures. It usually tells you pretty quickly what your problem is. You know what I mean? Like, if you've got it, I mean, assuming you know how to interpret what you're seeing, you can solve that problem by the next practice session, right? But you won't solve it without, oh, we'll substitute this and we'll substitute that. You might hurt somebody or bugger a car while you're doing that, keep in mind, right? So you might not necessarily solve your problem. You might not have saved that much money in the end. I mean, I understand where the NASCAR blokes are going and I see that point, but until you tried it, you wouldn't know, really. I think, you know, it's like any of those things. There's been a lot of things tried to save money and really in the end they haven't, have they? Like, there's no teams in this pit lane rolling in money, is there? They're all, you know, running on the margin all the time. And if you think of all the controlled items that come along and all the regulations changed to help save money, in the end, are they saving any money? They'll spend what they've got. The, the, basically, they'll spend what they've got to spend. And, and quite a few teams have been known to go not that well because they've overspent what they've got, you know. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced that saving money in motor racing is as easy as you think. This is the top level of motor racing in the Southern Hemisphere. Right, and it's a very tough game. If, if you've got any doubts about the quality of the people in it, look at Scott McLaughlin. He came out of a barge that weighs 1,380 kilos with a spool diff and jumped into a rocket ship that doesn't even look like a racing car, and he's up the front. Now, man, that, is, that shows you the talent of the drivers at least, doesn't it? But if, if you look, the teams are pretty much up there too. There's a lot of very clever people in this paddock. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a tough game and it stays a tough game. It, it won't get any easier. Changing, making it cheaper won't make it easier. And how you make it cheaper, I have no idea. But that mission's been going ever since I can remember and nobody's succeeded yet. They've changed a lot of things and nobody's succeeded. 
Well, thank you for joining us on Inside Supercars. I want you to go and enjoy another race uh, of a, a sport you've been involved in for a long time. I'm pretty sure that you still your happy place is uh, somewhere where you've got a rod in your hand, not a stopwatch. Oh. I've come down. I, I didn't have to come today. I could have come just yesterday. But I get to meet a lot of people I haven't seen for a long time. You know, I've got a lot of friends and the people I've got a lot of time for in the paddock. I just the problem is if I come here, they're working, and this is really precious time at a race meeting. You know, it's like there isn't an, never enough time. So, like, like Andrew Edwards, who's gone down to Triple Eight, I haven't even seen him. I've been to cast a couple of times, I haven't seen him. Like Dave Couchy, is a good friend. Like all I've got is a hug and a handshake because they're busy, and I understand it because I've done it. You just can't intrude on it because it's they work. You know, in this case, probably two or three weeks to get to this meeting, and this is the crunch time. You know, you don't need to be standing around talking about it. You know, they need, if nothing else, even if they're not doing it, they're training a thought to one place and that's it, you know. So you need to make sure that you don't interrupt their train of thought, you know, I respect that because, you know, if you ever tried to deal with me at work, you would have found that I'm perhaps not the most affable bloke you've ever come across some days, you know. Well, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts and views because, Wally, you, you may not think it, but you are a treasure of this place and we're all very glad you're here, all right? I'm just another bloke who got good opportunities and got mixed up with some good people. And you didn't waste them. And I don't waste them. I, you know, like I've, like I've been lucky and I've taken on board. Like people, people, good quality people. You know, like famous people like Frank Gardner or Peter Malloy or not so known people like Ronnie Gillard. The clever people when they give you advice, they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you. So you need to take it on board and think it through. You know, and and that's. Now, I'd give that advice to anybody. If someone's trying to help you, take it on board and have a listen. You don't necessarily have to do it, but at least think about what they're doing and what they're telling you. That's it from Inside Supercars. Thank you very much for joining us, Wally Story. Mm, right up. Thanks very much, Stan. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.